got it stuck. You got what stuck? It. Oh! It, um, um, uh, well, uh, listen, uh, it's not the end of the world. Uh, these kind of things happen. Uh, uh, let's have a look at it. No, for God, never say Shh! Shh! Sheila! No! Sheila, uh, no, honey? Don't. Sheila, honey, uh, uh, you gotta come here. You got. You, you gotta see this. What? what? Don't. Don't come in here. Honey. Don't. Don't. Don't worry. She's a dental hygienist. She'll know exactly what to do. Hi, Ted. Hi, Mrs. Jensen. How are you? You okay? Yeah. Okay. Holy shh! Charlie, you could have warned me. Okay. I'm sorry, Mrs. Jensen. I just don't want her. I don't want her here. You know. Yeah. Um, let's just relax here, okay? Now. Uh. Uh. Exactly, are we uh, looking at here? Um, what do you mean? What? Well, I mean, um, is it the? Um, or the? Is it the Frank or the beans? Right. Oh, I, I, I don't know. It looks like I think it's a little bit of both. Break some beans! Break some beans! What's that bubble there? What do you think? It's a. Well, how the hell did you get the beans above the Frank? I mean, I don't know. It wasn't like it was a well-thought-out plan. You know, there uh, there really does seem to be an awful lot of skin coming through there, so I'm going to find some back tea, honey. Uh, no, you, you know what? I don't need any, really. Oh, there. Oh, Christ. What the hell's going on here? Neighbors said they heard a lady scream. Uh, well, you're looking at him. Uh, you got to take a look at this thing. Oh, Jesus Ain't it a beaut? What the hell were you thinking? How the hell did you get the zipper all the way to the top? Well, let's just say the kid's limber. Ow! Ow! Christ! What the... God! Somebody's gonna have to move that station right in front so I can get the truck in here. Lenny, Who's... come here. Oh. Take a look at what this numbnuts did. Holy shit! <laughs> Mike, Eddie, get down here quick. Bring everybody. Bring a camera. You're not going to believe this. We got a kid down here. What, what's your name? No, I... No, there's only one thing to do here. Wait, can I... You know what? I got an idea. I got an idea. Look, look. I can just... We don't have to do anything, because... Look, I can just wear this over the front. Look, I can Stop. go to the prom. We'll deal with it Stop. later. Relax. I... You already laid the tracks. That's the hard part. Now we're just gonna back it up. Teddy, be brave. It's just like pulling off a band-aid. <laughs> a one and a two and a... We got a bleeder! In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Emma. Welcome to Bubble Diorama episode 218. There's something about Mary. 
This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Double Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener of this podcast, thank you for being here. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And as always, I'm so happy and genuinely delighted to have you here just generally, but also for this episode, for the history and legacy of There's Something About Mary. And this is a movie that I'll admit I was a little bit obsessed with back in 1998. I remember watching it a lot. And all throughout August, I wanted to do movies that I think were a little bit nostalgic for me personally. August is my birthday month, so there is that. But also, I don't know, I just feel like there's something about there's something about Mary in a way. And I really wanted to go into the story behind There's Something About Mary because there's something about the story behind There's Something About Mary as well. But before I do that, I just want to say, as always, thank you for the amazing reception to this podcast and also to the most recent episode of this podcast. So I've recently done episodes on Night of the Living Dead, the 1968 original, and most recently, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And the links between Eternal Sunshine and this movie are actually totally unplanned. I didn't plan to put them both together in the schedule. But really, you've kind of gone from a relationship you can't remember to a girl that you cannot forget. Literally, all these guys cannot forget this one girl. And also, weird, creepy stalker guys with an obsession with one particular girl. We got it in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and we've got it en masse in this movie as well. And can I just say, for the record, guys, it's not hot or sexy to stalk someone. And I really do think that Hollywood thinks it is, especially in the case of this movie. And I guess there was a point in time in Hollywood when guys stalking girls was romantic. Let me tell you, it's really not. But while there's something about Mary might just be known for that one scene or that other one scene, it actually did more for R-rated comedies in Hollywood than you might think. So here's the trailer for There's Something About Mary. No animals or humans were harmed during the following preview. Not even the fake ones. Honest. Are you going to the prom? I, I don't, you know, I think prom. Because I thought maybe we, um, dumb. we could go together. Oh, you're going to go with like a bunch of people? or <laughs> Yeah, you want like a designated driver? I no, no. <laughs> I mean, you and me, we could go together. Why do birds suddenly appear? When I was 16 years old, I fell in love. Oh, no, I, no, no, I was ah! We got a bleeder! Are you okay, Ted? It was definitely love. I'm Mary again. I mean, crushes don't last for 13 years, right? He couldn't help it. Hi, it's Ted. I haven't seen you since, uh, since... Senior prom. <laughs> I, uh... How's everything? Oh, that's fine. Strong like bull. <laughs> and he couldn't explain it. You asked me to follow around your girl, and I did. And then the truth is, I only started to like her. Because there's something about Mary. She's still a fox. Mary's a fox. She's a fox. When a guy who can play 36 holes and still have enough energy to take me and my brother to a ball game. Just a little bit of history repeating. 
Too bad you don't live here, Ted. 20th Century Fox presents... How many is this? Four. Four. Seems like an awful lot to give one little pooch. He doesn't like anybody. He never usually likes guys. A new comedy. Come on, boy. From the Fairley Brothers, directors of Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin. Would you like a little clam dip, though? Whatever. Cameron Diaz, Matt Dillon, Ben Stiller. There's something about Mary. Are you the little guy making all that big noise? Huh? Ah! In 1985, awkward and shy 16-year-old high schooler Ted Stroman lands a prom date with his dream girl, Mary Jensen, only to have it cut short by a painful and embarrassing zipper incident. After the ordeal garners the attention of numerous members of the household and community, Ted is finally carted off to the hospital. He subsequently loses touch with Mary. Thirteen years later, Ted is still in love with Mary. On the advice of his best friend Dom, he hires private detective Pat Healy to track her down. Healy finds out that she's an orthopaedic surgeon living in Miami with her friend Magda, but Healy falls in love with the irresistible Mary as well and sets out to stop Ted from tracking her down while also using the information he'd gleaned from Ted to make himself Mary's ideal man. Let's go through the cast of this movie. We have Cameron Diaz as Mary Jensen, Matt Dillon as Pat Healy, Ben Stiller as Ted Stroman, Lee Evans as Tucker, Chris Elliott as Dom Woogie Woganowski, Lynn Shea as Magda, Jeffrey Tambor as Sully, Marky Post as Sheila Jensen, W.L. Brown as Warren Jensen, Keith David as Charlie, Sarah Silverman as Brenda, Candy Alexander as Joni, and Marnie Alexenberg as Lisa. There's Something About Mary has a screenplay by Ed Dector, John J. Strauss, Peter Farrelly and Bobby Farrelly, a story by Ed Dector and John J. Strauss, and was directed by Peter Farrelly and Bobby Farrelly. And writers John J. Strauss and Ed Dector might not be household names, but they've both had fairly prolific careers. Both were writers on the hit TV show Boy Meets World, Strauss was actually the guy who named the character of Topanga after the Topanga Canyon. But even before that show premiered in 1993, they'd written the story and screenplay to a movie, which was 1989's Options, about a guy travelling to Africa for business who encounters a princess while he's there. It was around this time that the pair were trying to come up with ideas, clearly one of them being about a guy travelling to Africa for business who encounters the princess while he's there, but also basically throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what stuck. Or hair gel, shall we say. Mostly because spec comedy scripts sold really well at the time, and this was mostly due to Shane Black selling Lethal Weapon. The original idea for a story came from Ed Dector, who heard a story about a gay man who had lost touch with the person growing up who helped him feel comfortable about his sexuality. Because this was pre-social media, this man hired a private investigator to track the person down. Additionally, at the time, John J. Strauss was living in an apartment complex that overlooked another, 
and there was a woman who lived opposite who would undress without closing her blinds. And together, they wondered, what if she was the one the private detective was looking for, fell in love with her, told the guy that he'd never found her, and then chatted her up himself with all the info that he knew about her. This led to them coming up with an idea, a love triangle scenario, with a guy still in love with his high school crush, who hires a detective to find her, but he falls for her too, but with definite shades of creepiness and stalking. The script for this something about Mary was acquired by Touchstone Pictures, who, obviously, Touchstone loved to deal with slightly more grown-up movies than Disney might. Their original screenplay was a bit more creepy than raunchy, though, and because of this and various other reasons, it languished in development hell for years. And credit where credit's due, because I actually have to thank Simon Brew for this little tidbit of information, because it's through him I found out about what is now called the Writers Guild of America's Minimum Basic Agreement, whereby original writers can apply for the reacquisition of theatrical screenplays. Now, what that means is a writer who created an original theatrical screenplay that has never been produced and they would like to set it up within the company, there is a provision in the WGA Minimum Basic Agreement that allows writers to buy back their unproduced original literary material referred to as a reacquisition. However, there are a number of requirements that need to be met, and there's also a limited window of time in which the material can be reacquired. So basically, you would need to answer yes to the following questions. Question number one, is the project theatrical? Number two, were you employed by a signatory company to write the literary material? Or if it was a sale, did you meet the MBA definition of professional writer? at the time you sold the literary material to the signatory company. Number three, is the project original? In other words, not based on any pre-existing material. Four, has it been at least five years and not more than 10 years since you last delivered a draft of the literary material to the company? And five, is the project unproduced? Now, bear in mind, this is the current minimum basic agreement. And the one in the early 90s may have been different, but fundamentally what happened was that because Touchstone never produced their screenplay and it lay dormant for a number of years, Strauss and Decter were then able to pitch to have their screenplay returned to them to shop around to other studios, which they did, and they got it back. It landed with the Farrelly brothers, then fresh off the success of Dumb and Dumber and the relative disappointment of Kingpin, a movie that has since become a cult favourite. John J. Strauss and Ed Decker were friends, the Farrelly brothers, and saw with the brothers a chance to get their Mary screenplay made, but not without changes. Gone was Ted being a creepy stalker. They gave his creepier traits to Pat Healy, the sleazy private detective character. The whole process was a collaborative affair between the four writers, but it was the Farrellys who wanted to push the boundaries of the script into a more humorous and gross-out fashion reigniting the R-rated comedy in Hollywood and starting a trend that would continue for the next 10 to 15 years at least. Now in the past, audiences really liked films that broke sexual taboos. Films like National Lampoon's Animal House introduced a new kind of crude irreverent humour in 1978. Movies came along like Police Academy, Porky's, Caddyshack, Stripes, and more lesser-known films saunter down the same murky path. But then you started to get sequels and repetitive jokes, and audiences eventually grew weary of these movies because the jokes were mostly at the expense of women or people of colour or, indeed, people with disabilities. But 
we're going to come back to that. Comedies were toned down throughout the late 80s and early 90s. You could have risque jokes, but retaining that PG-13 rating seemed to be key to get the audiences in the cinemas. Even the Farrelly brothers, who'd had huge success with Dumb and Dumber, were making basically PG-13 comedies. All of Jim Carrey's 1994 trifecta of comedy films, aforementioned Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective and The Mask, were all PG-13 comedies. Two weeks before There's Something About Mary came out at the cinemas, Dr. Doolittle was a huge PG-13 comedy hit. But then There's Something About Mary came out and bucked that trend, which would then lead to more R-rated comedies like American Pie and Road Trip in the early 2000s. But then the US Congress got involved because prior to the 2000 election, Arizona Republican Senator John McCain convened hearings to criticise the studios for marketing R-rated content to children. Studios and exhibitors decided to strictly police the R rating. New guidelines that restricted primetime advertising for R-rated films were also implemented by TV networks. What this basically meant was that it was harder for R-rated comedies to advertise. There were limitations, such as only being allowed to advertise on TV after 10pm. So they had to find other ways to market their movies. The grossness of several R-rated comedies that were released in the wake of the congressional hearings, such as Tomcats and Freddy Got Fingered, which were both released in the spring of 2001, caused them to flop. Even the Farrelly brothers would ultimately return to PG-13 comedies for Shallow Hell and Stuck on You. It didn't quash the desire for R-rated comedies, though, because in the early 2000s, we got Wedding Crushers, Knocked Up, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, into the 2010s with Bridesmaids, the Hangover, of course, would go on to earn over half a billion dollars worldwide in 2009, only surpassed by its sequel, The Hangover Part 2, in 2011. The something about Mary was, in essence, a trendsetter, but it never set out to be one. Now, in Hollywood, you're only as good as your most recent movie. So for the Farrelly brothers, that was the bowling comedy Kingpin. And after the incredible success of Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin underwhelmed at the box office. But at 20th Century Fox, Tom Sherrock, the marketing and distribution executive for Motion Pictures, was a fan of the Farrelly Brothers. And he basically said to them, bring in your passion project. And for the Farrellys, they saw this as their last chance to impress. It was a small script titled There's Something About Mary that they had been rewriting into a potential R-rated comedy. Because Kingpin had been such a disappointment, a lot was riding on them professionally for There's Something About Mary. So they made the movie as if it were their last. And they basically wanted to make being on the set of this movie as fun as possible. It goes without saying it would make stars out of Ben Stiller and Cameron Diaz. Stiller was an actor and director who directed and starred in Reality Bites in 1994 and The Cable Guy in 1996. There's so many links to this movie and to Jim Carrey, who obviously also starred in the previous episode's movie as well. Reality Bites had been a modest success, but The Cable Guy had struggled, barely breaking even at the box office. Stiller wasn't really seen as a comedic actor, and he wasn't the studio's choice. Three people were up for the role of Ted, Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, and Jon Stewart, who'd go on to host The Daily Show that same year. The Farrellys gave the studio the choices of Stiller and Wilson, and the studio preferred Stiller. Stiller would go on to credit There's Something About Mary for changing the trajectory of his career. Cameron Diaz had, at that point, broken out in The Mask, also starring Jim Carrey, which was her film debut, age 21, in 1994. 
She'd had a busy full year since, starring in no less than eight other movies before There's Something About Mary, one of which was her other star-making turn in My Best Friend's Wedding. I love that movie so much. That is episode 145 of this podcast, by the way. She was the ideal Mary, but another young starlet was also in the running, one with a very popular TV show to her name. Friends had debuted in 1994 as well and quickly became a phenomenon. Courtney Cox had also starred in Ace Ventura Effect Detective with, of course, Jim Carrey that same year and had a starring role in Scream in 1996. That's episode 64 of this podcast, by the way. The Faraday brothers wrote the script with Diaz in mind but fell for Cox during auditions. Now, there are conflicting reports that say Cox was offered the role but her agents never told her or declined it on her behalf. But to be honest, the screen movies were doing well. Friends was a huge hit. It's highly unlikely Courtney Cox would have had the time anyway, but Cameron Diaz was ultimately chosen because of My Best Friend's Wedding. The Farrellists just thought she had that glow to her. They'd go on to say about her, quote, Cameron is the perfect woman. She doesn't want a guy with a washboard belly. She likes a beer belly. Her idea of a perfect date is playing 36 holes, then going to a ball game. She plays into every guy's fantasy, unquote. And to be honest, that's kind of the point of the character of Mary. While Bill Murray was considered for the role of Pat Healy, obviously Bill Murray had starred in Kingpin for the Farrelly Brothers, it was agreed that he was slightly too old. Matt Dillon and Cameron Diaz were actually dating at the time, but that had nothing to do with the casting choice for Pat Healy. The character of Warren, Mary's brother, like most of this movie actually, was based on a real person. And that person was a friend of the Farrelly's named Warren. The real-life Warren, Warren Tashjian, was the older brother of a friend who lived in their neighbourhood. Warren Tashjian actually has a cameo in this movie too. He plays the character of Freddy, the guy at the beach who asks Mary to marry him. The role of Warren was originally going to go to Chris Farley, but he was uninsurable at the time and would also end up dying during production of the movie. The character of Warren is understandably controversial, as the person playing him, W. L. Brown, is a non-disabled person playing a disabled person, not to mention the number of uses of an offensive slur to describe Warren. Brown based his performance on someone he knew and created Warren's personality and movements himself. The Faradays would maintain that the character was never meant to offend people with special needs, but to highlight Warren as a person in his own right and an important figure in Mary's life, as well as the real lives of millions of people worldwide. Peter Farrelly has said about the character of Warren, quote, We know in our hearts where we're coming from, and we're coming from a loving place. That's the truth. He's based on a guy we grew up with named Warren, who lived on our street, who was intellectually challenged. He hung around because he was our friend's older brother. He was several years older than us, but he'd play hockey with us, and he would hang out, and we loved Warren, and we'd joke around with him. So nobody who knew Warren in our group would ever in a million years think there was anything insulting about it. The people who complain about this sort of thing are the people who would rather never see them. We're like, well, they're real people, why not put them out there? And in fact, I've read things in the press about how people were offended, but we never ever got one letter from anybody that was offended by it. In fact, all we got were letters saying, hey, I have a brother who's intellectually challenged, and I saw your movie and it made me want to hang with him more, unquote. Mary and Warren love each other unconditionally, and they genuinely wanted to put that across but it's unfortunate that Warren becomes so many of the punchlines because of his disabilities. And a lot of the quotes from W. Earl Brown on playing Warren 
are littered with the R words. So I'm not going to be repeating any of those. The character of Warren, though, looks to repeat things that he's heard, including Frank and Beans. And like with a lot of this movie, that's also based on a true story, too. The Farrelly brothers wanted the best way to embarrass a teenage boy in front of a girl he was crushing on and remember the time when their younger sister had a group of fellow 8th graders over to the house to listen to records in the basement. One of the kids went up to the bathroom and he managed to zip himself up, shall we say. The young boy was in the bathroom for a long time and the Farrelly's dad, who was a doctor, actually had to go in and find out if the kid was alright. Their parents never told them the story until years later because they wanted to save that boy the embarrassment. And though Mary's stepdad Charlie is based on their own father, they decided to cast African-American actor Keith David for the part because he blew them away on audition. David also ad-libbed many of his lines too and based the role on his own loving stepfather. The early sequences with Ted, Mary and Warren in high school were among the many parts of There's Something About Mary that were filmed on location in Florida. But instead of shooting at a real school, Plantation Florida's Municipal Hall was used instead and redressed as a high school. The production company reportedly paid the Plantation City Council $2,500 for the use of the Municipal Hall. City officials, however, asked that Plantation Florida not be listed in the credits once the movie came out. Because at the time, the Municipal Council didn't want to be linked with anything that was considered rude or indecent. Maybe it's changed its mind since, though, because the film is now referenced on the Wikipedia page for Plantation, Florida. The movie was also filmed at Greenwich Studios in Miami, the Cardozo Hotel, Edison Hotel, South Beach, the Miami-Dade Cultural Center, all in Miami, and various scenes were also filmed in Providence, Rhode Island and Baltimore, Maryland. Filming took place between December 1997 and February 1998. And by all accounts, it was a fantastic production to work on and everyone really did enjoy their time doing this movie. Academy Award winning makeup artist Tony Gardner worked on the makeup and visual effects on There's Something About Mary. He also worked on Hocus Pocus, Zombieland and The Addams Family. That's still the biggest episode of the diorama ever. That's episode 119. Gardner began his career working on Michael Jackson's Thriller video. The aforementioned Frankenbeans was a four foot by two foot prosthetic mounted on a wooden board. The Faradays were certain that Peter Chernin, the head of Fox, would actually ask them to take out the close-up, but Chernin insisted they keep it in after witnessing test audience reactions for himself. That doesn't mean they had a particularly easy time keeping Fox executives happy though, because the character of Warren was especially troublesome for the executives. And the Farrelly's basically had to reassure them that actually this character was funny and actually they should keep the scenes in the movie. Test audiences were also integral to the um, hair gel scene. 20 samples were created and the chosen piece was attached to Ben Stiller's ear. Ben Stiller actually wanted a whole backstory about how the sample ended up on his ear and how did he not feel it on his ear. But it was basically established that it was not necessary, that the sample itself was enough. Cameron Diaz, though, was slightly concerned when it actually came to filming this scene. And Cameron Diaz, I've got a few of her movies on this podcast, and she's generally game for pretty much anything. And I think that comes across in her performances as well. But then she realised that this could actually sabotage her budding career if it was handled, no pun intended, incorrectly. 
The Farrelly brothers didn't want to force her to do anything that she wasn't completely comfortable with. And so they said, let's let test audience reaction decide. If the test audiences hated the scene, they would take it out. But if they loved it, they would keep it in. Diaz saw the reaction. She knew her career would be fine. And it was. It's not like she's typecast as quote-unquote hair gel girl nowadays. And one of the things I genuinely did not know about this movie was the actress Lynn Shay. Because Lynn Shay is a certified screen queen. She's had roles in A Nightmare on Elm Street, Critters, Ouija and the Insidious franchise. She broke out into comedy in Dumb and Dumber and she also starred in Kingpin as well. She got the role of Magda and spent four hours a day in makeup just to get Magda's permatanned orange skin. Shay also kept Magda's fake leathery breasts, which she kept in a window box at her house. Somebody would end up stealing Magda's $5,000 wig, though. Puffy, the dog played by a dog called Slammer, really did love Shay. And those dog kisses, they are real, genuine, 100% dog kisses. Shay wasn't expecting the dog kisses, but Slammer wanted those kisses. And so she stayed completely in character for the whole thing as Slammer was giving her lovely doggy kisses. And speaking of a guy who loves dogs so much, that his character kills 439 people across the whole franchise is Keanu Reeves. So we're going to segue from Puffy's dog kisses into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's where I tried to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he is the best of men and he is clearly a huge lover of dogs. And who isn't? Let's be honest. And this is a particularly easy one because obviously Keanu has starred in a movie with Mary herself, Cameron Diaz. A couple of years before There's Something About Mary, they starred together in a movie that I actually have not seen, a movie called Feeling Minnesota. I did have a look at the critical reaction to Feeling Minnesota and it's not particularly great. I believe in that movie they're a couple, so clearly Keanu knew there was something about Cameron Diaz and then she became Mary, something about Mary. Yeah, it all makes sense. The 1965 Western comedy Cat Balloon, which starred Stubby K and Nat King Cole as troubadours, gave the Farrellys the idea to cast eccentric singer-songwriter Jonathan Richman as the movie's Greek chorus, along with drummer Tommy Larkins. The wraparound musical narration, however, was absent from the original draft of the script. Basically, what happened was the Farrellys saw one of Richman's Los Angeles performances, and when they heard the song Let Her Go Into the Darkness, they had just finished writing the script and they thought the song would be perfect for the movie. They realised that all of his songs were bangers and the idea developed into incorporating Richmond as well as his music into the movie itself rather than just using the music as the soundtrack. The Farrellys sent Richmond the script and an hour later he called them suggesting he write a theme song. It took 20 minutes to make up the song. Obviously, it's the same as the film's title. It establishes the mood and it serves as a reminder to the audience that underneath the layers of crudeness, there is, sort of, an inherently romantic core. Even so, the Farrelly brothers were doubtful that this idea would actually work. So they decided to get Richmond and Larkins on set for 10 weeks. They paid them for their time and filmed them in scenes in the background and just singing along. But they also filmed around them in case they didn't want to use the characters as troubadours. In the original draft of the script, Ben Stiller's Ted gets killed right as he finally unites with Mary at the end. But during the filming process, the Farrelly decide to have him dodge the bullet, so to speak, 
instead offering rich men up as a human sacrifice. In the process of getting shot, the character tumbles over the edge of the pier, guitar and all. But Richman was insistent that they not use a genuine Rickenbacker guitar for the scene because they're apparently very expensive. So they got a cheap stunt double guitar to use instead. Even while editing, the Farrellys were still prepared to cut the troubadours out of the film. And because they'd shot the entire movie with that in mind, they ensured that the narrative would work with or without the music. But test screenings with the pair proved wildly successful and they knew it was the right choice. And even though Richmond's career has cemented him as one of the best songwriters of the last 20 years, he still gets noticed as the guy from There's Something About Mary and he's rightly very proud of that fact. And of course, Build Me Up Buttercup and The Foundations were all but forgotten by 1998. So this threw the band back into the public consciousness. The group even reformed in 1999 due to the popularity of that one song. A re-release of the song charted at number 71 here in the UK. It last charted at number two back in 1968. And at the end of each shooting day, boomboxes on the set played Build Me Up Buttercup and they filmed as the characters sang and danced a few verses of the song. And that is what ends up in the final credits of the movie, those end of day shoots with everyone singing Build Me Up Buttercup. There's Something About Mary was released on the 15th of July 1998 in the US and opened fourth at the box office, the same week as The Mask of Sorrow was released, which went straight to number one. Lethal Weapon 4 was at number two and Armageddon was at three. There's Something About Mary sat in the fourth and third positions in the US box office for six weeks, which is pretty amazing in itself, actually, to maintain those two spots, hardly losing any percentage gross each week. And then in the seventh week, there's something about Mary went up to second place, just behind Blade, which had come out two weeks prior. Also did an episode on Blade as well. And then in the eighth week, just based on good word of mouth, there's something about Mary finally hit number one at the US box office. On its $23 million budget, there's something about Mary quite literally creamed over the competition. That's a bit gross, but I'm going to go with it. It grossed $176.5 million domestically in the US and $193.4 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $369.9 million. The Something About Mary was 1998's third highest grossing film in North America, as well as the fourth highest grossing film of the year globally. Critics were positive as well, which is rare for an R-rated comedy. Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars, stating... What a blessed relief is laughter. It flies in the face of manners, values, political correctness and decorum. It exposes us for what we are, the only animal with a sense of humour. Cameron Diaz received a Best Actress, Musical or Comedy Golden Globe nomination for her role as Mary, but she'd lose out to Gwyneth Paltrow in Shakespeare in Love. The movie would also be nominated for Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, also losing out to Shakespeare in Love. Diaz would also win a New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actress, an MTV Movie Award for Best Performance, an American Comedy Award for Best Actress, and a Blockbuster Entertainment Award for Best Actress. The movie won four out of eight MTV Movie Awards, including Best Movie. And no one anticipated There's Something About Mary to be a success, so it came as no surprise when there was demand for more once it was. Bobby and Peter Farrelly were invited by 20th Century Fox to create a sequel, but they would decline. According to Bobby Farrelly, it was, quote, a movie we just wanted to play by itself, unquote. 
The Farrelly brothers didn't reveal in 2018 that they intended to adapt the movie into a stage musical, but no further information on that. The Farrellys had only ever done one sequel in their entire career. That was Dub and Dumber 2 in 2014, and I've not seen it, but I've heard it's not great. But we need to find out if other people think this movie is great or not. So we're going to go to social media thoughts. And I like to ask on Patreon and also across social media what people think of the movies that I'm featuring. We're going to start with the patrons. And we're going to start with Pete, who says, Oh man, I loved this movie in 1998 and I still love it now. Stiller effectively plays the kind-hearted everyman while Diaz truly embodies a modern version of idealised woman. Not to mention Dylan's scumbag P.I. bereft of morals is absolutely perfect. Some people say the parts with Warren would never fly today, but his involvement adds another layer of depth to every character who interacts with him, good or bad. Oh yeah, and it's a comedy that is legitimately laugh-out-loud hilarious. And as always, if a patron has their own podcast, then I do like to give their podcast a little bit of a plug. So Pete's podcast is called Middle Class Film Class. It's hosted by Pete and also Joseph and Tyler and is basically a weekly movie news and reviews podcast. You should absolutely listen to it. I will put some information in the show notes for Middle Class Film Class. We also have a patron comment from Perennial Commenter Andy who says, So there's a lot to love about this something about Mary, if you can get around the questionable treatment of both Warren and Norm pre-Pizza Guy. There's great chemistry between Ben Stiller and Cameron Diaz, the constant thread of musical narration from Jonathan Richmond is quite amazing, and to this day, I will always pronounce it Favre. And to be honest, Andy, I have no idea how to pronounce his name, so I guess it is Brett Favre. Andy's podcast is the Inimitable Geek Salad. It is basically the one-stop shop for all of your geeky, nerdy podcast needs. And you should absolutely be listening to Geek Salad. So I will also put information in the show notes for that podcast too. We also have a patron comment from Derek who says, It's a comedy classic with non-stop laughs from start to finish. It cemented Ben Stiller as the comedy superstar of the late 90s, early aughts. However, literally everyone in it is phenomenal. How to get the beans above the frank cracks me up every time. And Derek also has his own podcast. He hosts The Midnight Myth with his wife, Laurel. And they like to look into the history, philosophy and mythology of basically our modern pop culture. It's a fascinating podcast. You should also listen to that too. I will put information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. And the final petrol comment comes from Danny, who simply says, it's a movie that sticks in my mind. And... Danny is a prolific podcaster. He works for Captivate, so it makes complete sense that he has quite a few podcasts. But I want to highlight his podcast, One Minute Podcast Tips, because if you are planning to start a podcast or you're interested in starting a podcast, it is basically a great place to go for what it says on the tin, One Minute Podcast Tips. So I will put some information for One Minute Podcast Tips also in the show notes too. We're going to move over to Twitter. And we're going to start with at Needed Roads, who said, It made a whole generation of men scared of zippers. At the underscore film underscore B said, I always heard it was the funniest film ever made, but when I eventually got around to watching it, I was very disappointed. It's very average in my opinion. At Kevin underscore the critic said, Raunchy, hilarious, yet surprisingly sweet. At I Am That Wiz said, Saw it in theatres and loved it back then. But man, would this generation of young film watchers not like this at all. Even in its crudeness, it's smart, sweet and funny. But when it gets crude, it's still light enough not to make you feel like you need a shower afterwards. 
favourite part is when Matt Dillon is with the special needs adults being an absolute a-hole and not realising how much of a D he is. Him gloating at beating one of them in chess is hilarious in how much of an asshat he is. At Love Magician said, Even with a sprinkle of late 90s shock value comedy that's hardcore cringe today, it overshadowed by brilliantly comedic bits and performances from a charming cast. A classic rom-com that has cemented itself in film history forever. And at Boss underscore Arjan said, Saw it in the cinema and most expensive DVD I bought, or at least how I remember it, it was still in our old currency, Dutch Gilders. No comments on Instagram, Facebook or indeed threads for this movie. But as always, thank you to everyone for your comments for this something about Mary. And if you do want your comment read out in episodes, comment on the thoughts posts that go up on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and also threads as well. They normally go up on a Friday. You just put a comment under the post. I will find it. I will copy and paste it into my notes and I will read it out in the next episode. The summer of 1998 saw There's Something About Mary become a massive critical and financial success. It was a genuine cultural phenomenon. It continues to rank as one of the all-time highest grossing romantic comedies and the image of Cameron Diaz with stuck-up hair became one of the defining images of 90s comedy. And this was a 90s that had been defined by the rom-com starting with Pretty Woman, into things like Sleepless in Seattle, While You Were Sleeping, You've Got Mail, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and My Best Friend's Wedding. Some were tamer than others, but all of them were glossy and tropey. They were earnest and compassionate, and they ultimately told us that love conquered all. Love would also conquer all in There's Something About Mary, as Mary chooses Ted, and the other stalkers are left to pick up the pieces of their unrequited love for Mary, but it's hard to see how the comedic landscape would have looked without Mary to guide it. It's not a perfect movie. It has glaring problems, especially in the character of Warren. It is great that they wanted to be inclusive and include a character with a disability, but not when he's both mocked and humanised whenever the movie requires either. It was also refreshing in 1998 to see a character like Mary. Sure, she's Cameron Diaz. She's literal physical perfection but she's also sweet and kind, and you can see why these men are drawn to her. Without an actor like Cameron Diaz, who's so open to different roles and playing against type, Mary as a character might not have been quite so admirably drawn as the girl next door. Men want her, women want to be her, and Diaz participates in the comedy rather than just letting the men around her take all the good lines. But, similarly to last week's episode on Eternal Sunshine of the Spot's Mind, there's a darkness to this story that's often hidden by its candy-coloured exterior and Cameron Diaz's winning smile. There's something about Mary basically tells us that if a woman as ideal as Mary actually existed, she would be stalked by men all the time. And maybe it was intentional that the Farrelly brothers satirised the way Hollywood frequently glorifies obsession in the name of true love. Even though Ted is the one that we should be rooting for, the movie makes it clear in the end that his actions really aren't that different from all of those creeps who've made it their life's work to infiltrate Mary's world. And does he actually deserve someone as wholesome and accomplished as Mary? Actually, probably not. Really, the only man who truly loves Mary unconditionally and wholeheartedly is her brother Warren. And to a lesser extent, as he's not on screen enough, her stepfather Charlie. And while the movie remains sweet and charming, that darkness 
just bubbling under the surface is the cultural misogyny of boys will be boys. And if anything, maybe this movie should have ended with Ted being run over just to give poor Mary some much-needed peace and quiet. Maybe, just like Mary said, she would just be happier with her vibrator. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on There's Something About Mary. As always, get involved and help this podcast grow because if you have enjoyed this podcast and you've enjoyed previous episodes, you could leave a rating or review wherever you found it. Ideally, five stars. If you can, that would be amazing. You can retweet all my posts on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads, letterbox, basically everywhere there is social media, I am there. Or you can simply tell a friend or family member about this podcast. Help them download it, help them listen to it, and just spread the word about this podcast. Independent podcasts thrive on word of mouth. We don't have big budgets to have huge billboards in London or anything like that. So really, if you can help spread the word, that would be great help for me. If you have enjoyed this episode on There's Something About Mary, you might also like previous episodes of this podcast and the movies too. I'm just going to recommend two this week, episode 40, Bridesmaid, because it feels like there's a little bit of DNA between those two movies. Bridesmaids is hilarious and I love it so much because newsflash women can be funny. But it does feel like the trend started by There's Something About Mary filtered through Hollywood to get us to someplace like Bridesmaids. And I'm really grateful because Bridesmaids is hilarious and I adore it. Also, episode 125, Anchorman, again, it's got a lot of DNA shared with a movie like There's Something About Mary. And arguably, the career of Jen Apatow, as an example, probably would not exist without the Farrelly brothers paving a way for it. Or if it did exist, it would be a little bit different, I think. Obviously, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know what you think. So the next episode, we are continuing with the nostalgia for me and the movie in the 90s and also continuing the romantic aspect because this is a story that is hailed as one of the greatest love stories of all time, also one of the greatest tragedies of our time. And I have actually mentioned him in this episode because we're going to go into Shakespeare. I know, Shakespeare. I've done Shakespeare adaptations on this podcast before, but I've never done a literal adaptation of Shakespeare. And this particular movie came out in 1996. I remember having a poster of this movie on my bedroom wall as a kid, and I fell in love with the leading actor in this movie. And I was pretty obsessed with this movie when I was a teenager. So I'm going to be re-watching this movie for the first time in a very long time. And I'm really hoping that it holds up the way that I think it holds up. We are going to be going back to 1996's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes as the star-crossed lovers. And as I said, I was obsessed with that movie when I was a teenager. And I'm so looking forward to watching it again. I'm so looking forward to going into the history and legacy of a truly modern adaptation of Shakespeare. So join me next week for the history and legacy of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Now, I always say every episode, this podcast is free and it always will be free. And that is genuine 100% guarantee. This podcast is never going to go behind a paywall. But if you do want to help support this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can do so. The first way is you can give a one-off tip. 
at verbaldioramacom slash tips. You could give a $1 tip, a $2 tip, a $5 tip. However much you want to give would be so gratefully received. And any donations this podcast does receive basically goes back into helping this podcast run with subscriptions and hosting and equipment and all of that sort of stuff. The other way is you could join the Patreon at verbaldioramacom slash Patreon. And you can join the amazing patrons of this podcast. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. There's something about literally all of you. You are amazing. I do also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can also find my website at verbaldiorama.com. You can find all of my episodes listed on there as well. And you can get in touch with me on that website or you can email verbaldiorama at gmail.com. And you can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk. You can find the Film Stories magazine. You can find the whole Film Stories project on that website and articles as well. Some of which are written by me. I love what I do for Film Stories and I love the magazine as well. So please support that too if you can. And finally. Bye. Movie should know.